The scripture reading for today is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yihui, for reading so well for us this morning. If you're here for the first time, my name is Z. I'm the lead pastor here at One Covenant Church. We'd love to get to know you and speak to you after the service. We're working our way through the book of Romans, chapter 9 to 11. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's help to understand His word this morning. Father, we thank you so much that this is your word. We pray that you come and take your word and write it on our hearts. Drive each and every one of us face to face with Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're working our way through the book of Romans. Now, Romans 9 to 11, this entire section that we're working on, is the Apostle Paul telling us what happened to the Jewish people. Now, it's actually a very important part of the book of Romans because Paul, by telling us what happened to the Jewish people, is seeking to give us confidence and full conviction that we can trust the promises of God in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? You see, friends, in Romans 1 to 8, Paul seeks to give us clarity of what the gospel is. He talks about the gospel in all of its beauty. And he tells us in Romans 1 to 8 that the gospel comes to us by way of the Jewish people. It's because God has made a promise to Abraham, the first Jewish person, that we then receive Jesus Christ and have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1 to 8. Now the problem is this. In Paul's day and even in our day, the majority of the Jewish people that uh, the majority of Jewish people do not embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah and they do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So does it mean that God's promises to Israel have failed? And if God's promises to Israel have failed, then can we truly trust God's promises to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And therefore what Paul wants to do here in Romans 9 to 11 is to explain in some detail what happened to the Jewish people so that we can be confident that his promises to Israel have not failed and will not fail, and therefore his promises to us in the gospel will also not fail. Now, a quick aside before we continue. That tells us, friends, that it's not enough just to be clear on the gospel. Now, hear me clearly. Clarity is very important. That's why we spent so long preaching through Romans 1 to 8, to give us clarity in our minds of what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. It's important to be clear. But Paul is showing us here that if the gospel is going to do everything that it's meant to do in our lives, clarity alone is not enough. You also need confidence and conviction that this gospel is indeed true, that your heart can rest in this gospel. A friend of mine, uh, Abe Cho from uh, New York City, used to say that the gospel needs to be burning radioactive in your heart. It's not just enough for you to be clear in your minds. It needs to be a conviction there has to be confidence in your heart that this gospel is indeed true. And that is why we have Romans 9 to 11. Come with me to Romans 9 verse 6. 
Now remember last week in Romans 4 to 5, Paul tells us all these wonderful gifts and promises that God has given to the Jewish people. They have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from them, their race comes Jesus Christ, and yet they have not believed in Jesus Christ and embraced him as Messiah. Well, Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Even though the Jewish people do not embrace Jesus as Messiah, it does not mean that the word of God has failed. You see, friends, the word of God is what God says. It's the promise of God. It's the promise that God has made to Israel. And even though the majority of Israel do not embrace the gospel, the word of God stands. God's promises have been fulfilled. God is true to his word to Israel, and he will be true to his word to us. And the question is, how? How has God been faithful to the Jewish people? And how will he be faithful to us? Now, friends, the answer to that question is many parts. And that's what Romans 9 to 11 is about. But here for today, let's look at verse 6. Paul answers the question this way. Look at the continuation of verse 6. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, friends, that's actually a bit of an interpretation. In the original language, it's literally, For not all who are from Israel... Ek, Israel, are of Israel. Are, are, not all who are from Israel are Israel. Do you see what he's saying here? There is this ethnic and cultural entity called Israel, but there is also an Israel within Israel, a true Israel. And God is faithful to the true Israel, not just to this ethnic and cultural entity called Israel, but to the Israel within Israel. Now, who is true Israel? Well, come with me to chapter 9, verse 8. Paul says this, it is not the children of the flesh, those who are descended ethnically and culturally Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of promise. You see what Paul is saying here? True Israel are the true children of God. Which means, friends, that 6 to 13 is not just relevant to Israel, it's relevant to you and me. Because in 6 to 13, we will discover what it means to be a true child of God. Because just as there is a true Israel within the ethnic and cultural Israel, there is a true church within the cultural church. Theologians distinguish between the visible and invisible church. The visible church is the church that we see, the people that gather on Sunday, the people that worship. But there is an invisible church, the church within the church of true believers and those who truly belong to God. Let me illustrate it this way. I was reading a sermon by Legan Duncan. He's the uh, president of Reformed Theological Seminary. And he said this, you look out on a church, and this is a good church. It's a church where the word of God is preached faithfully, where they believe the gospel. There is warm community. They encourage one another to live out the gospel. It's a great church. And as you look out at this church and the mass of people who are gathered there, you will see some who are obviously true believers. They trust in Jesus. They love him with all their hearts. And it shows in the lives that they live. It shows in the way they treat one another. So it's very clear that some of them are true believers. But Legan Duncan says, even in one of these gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, faithful and warm churches, as you look at the masses of people, you will find some of them who show no evidence at all that they've ever tasted of God's grace. It simply doesn't show in their lives. And you wonder to yourself, why? Same opportunities, same gospel message, same Bible. Should we change the Bible? 
Should we change the gospel message? Should we change the way we're doing things? Well, friends, Romans 9.6 gives us the answer. Not all who are from Israel are Israel. Not all who are from the church are the church. There is a church within the church of true believers. And oftentimes, it is not so easy to tell the difference. I heard a sermon from Tim Keller once. I can't even remember which it is. It's probably a number of years ago, and I can't even trace the source. But I remember him telling this story. He said, you know, there was this girl that came to me once after church, and she was very confused. And she said to me, uh, Tim, you know, there's this guy in church, and uh, he really loves you, uh-huh. and he loves your preaching, uh-huh. and he loves being part of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, Redeemer Presbyterian is a very renowned Presbyterian congregation in New York. He loves everything about it. But you know what? We went on a date, and he tried to sleep with me. How can that be? This guy loves your preaching. He loves you. He loves being part of Redeemer, and he tried to sleep with me. Should they change the Bible they preach at Redeemer Presbyterian Church? Should they change the gospel? Well, no, friends, because Romans 9 verse 6 gives us the answer. Not all who are from Israel are Israel. Not all who are from the church are the church. Not all who are from Redeemer Presbyterian Church are Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And friends, can I say firmly but lovingly to you, not all who are from one covenant church are one covenant church. There is an Israel within an Israel, a church within a church, the true believers in a mass of all those who are merely ethnically or culturally believers. And friends, do you see how important this is to us? Because what Paul will do in 6 to 13 is give us the characteristics of what a true child of God, true Israel is. And it's to true Israel and it's to the true children of God that the promises of God have been made and the promises of God have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. It will give us confidence, friends, that we are truly children of God, but it will also give us a sense of realism and a sense of wisdom as we deal with one another to know that not all who are from Israel are Israel. Not all who are from the church are the church. Friends, this is so essential for us to get because it can do two, one of two things to you. Number one, it can give you great confidence that you're truly one of God's children and you live out of that. But the second possibility is simply this. It might reveal to you that you might just be a cultural Christian and you do not really belong to the kingdom of God. And if that's the case... This passage also shows you how you get into the kingdom of God. So friends, can I ask you for a huge favor? This is so important. You need to hear every single word. Can I ask you to go to the toilet after the sermon, not during the sermon? Or you could have gone before, but after. Is that okay? I need you to listen very carefully to this. It will make a huge difference in your life. Are we ready? Well, Paul says here in Romans 9, 6 to 13, that there are three characteristics of what a true child of God, true Israel is. And he will show us that they are spiritual, they are miraculous, and they are chosen. Spiritual, miraculous, and chosen. Come with me to Romans 9, verse 7. Paul says this, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, friends, that word offspring is literally the word seed his physical seed. 
In Romans 9, 8, he says, it is not the children of the flesh, the physical descendants of Abraham, who are the children of God. So very clearly, Paul is telling us that true Israel is not merely the physical or biological descendants of Abraham. It's not by physical or biological descent. And friends, Paul has already said this in Romans 2, 28 to 29. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul said, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Friends, he's telling us here that true Israel is not by physical and biological descent. It's born of the Spirit. God must make you true Israel. True Israel is primarily spiritual and not physical and biological. And friends, this is not new to Israel. In Jeremiah 4.4, their prophet Jeremiah says to them, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Now friends, these are people who have already received the external sign of circumcision. Circumcision in the flesh. But, but Jeremiah still says to them, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. You know what he's saying to them? There is a circumcision of the flesh, but that's not enough. You need a spiritual circumcision of the heart to be truly one of God's children, to be part of Israel, the one who receives the promises of God. True Israel is spiritual and not merely physical and biological. Now, Christopher Ashe, he's a British Bible scholar, he tells of how he brought a neighbor to an evangelistic breakfast. And this neighbor says to Christopher Ashe, don't worry about me. My father was a vicar. Now, for those of you who don't know, a vicar is an Anglican pastor, an Anglican clergyman, an Anglican minister. What's he saying? Don't worry. I'm a child of God because my father was a pastor. And by physical descent, I can be confident that I'm a Christian too. And Paul is telling us that we have no right to have this confidence. Don't worry about me. My father was the lead pastor of One Covenant Church. Don't worry about me. My father was an elder. Don't worry about me. My father was a deacon. Don't worry about me. My mother was an apostle. You do not have the right to place your confidence in these things because true Israel and the true child of God is not primarily physical and biological. It's spiritual and born of the Spirit. Now, let me just say, it is a great privilege to be the child of the lead pastor of one covenant church. It is a great privilege to be the child of an elder or a deacon. You have received all of these wonderful gospel blessings in your life. But this is the problem. That in and of itself is not enough to make you a true child of God. Because a true child of God is spiritual and not physical and biological. Now friends, this is both humbling and freeing at the same time. Humbling because you simply cannot depend on physical descent to have confidence that you're a true child of God. You cannot say, I'm a fourth generation Bible Presbyterian. I'm a third generation Methodist. I'm a second generation Pentecostal. I'm okay. Cannot. You must have a spiritual experience of God's Spirit changing you, circumcising your heart. You simply cannot depend on your physical and biological descent. It's humbling. But it's also incredibly freeing, friends, because you don't need to depend on your physical and biological descent. And friends, I suspect that in our generation, there are many people who struggle with something called father hunger. 
you know, we did not have a good relationship with our fathers. Our father wasn't very spiritual. They had all kinds of bad things. And there's a yearning and a longing in our hearts for a kind of father figure in our lives. And those of us who come to the church, uh, we have that longing. You know, you come and you think, you know, man, my, my father didn't amount to much. He was an alcoholic. Uh, he wasn't into spiritual things. And so I feel very uh, emaciated in terms of spiritual things. He never led me in spiritual things. And then you look at someone else, you know, was raised in a Dutch Reformed tradition, maybe grew up in Grand Rapids, sat under the preaching of someone like Joe Beakey. Wow, morning and evening worship. Wow, family worship every day. And you think, oh, man. If I only had that, if that was my father, I'd be okay. I'd be set for life. And you feel in your heart that you will never amount to anything spiritually because you never had that kind of heritage. Now, friends, I'm not knocking that heritage. It's a great heritage, okay? But friends, do you know what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who depended on morning and evening worship and depended on family worship? Do you know what John the Baptist said to them in Matthew 3, 9? He said to them, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Friends, it's incredibly freeing. Freeing because you do not need to depend on your physical and biological upbringing. You do not need to feel I'm somehow less of a Christian and I will amount to less because I didn't have that heritage Friends, let your father hunger be fulfilled by God the Father in heaven through Christ, his son. Not some strange guy saying funny things on the internet. The true child of God is spiritual, not physical, not biological. And there are people coming to God, becoming true children of God from all kinds of backgrounds, friends, including you. That's what a true child of God is. But Paul goes on. He shows them in verse 7 to 9 that a true child of God is not just spiritual. It takes a miracle of God to create a child of God. Look at verse 7 to 9. Paul uses Abraham, Sarah, and their two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Look at verse 7. He says this, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now what's Paul doing here? He's going back to the book of Genesis, especially chapters 15 to 21. Now, if you know the story of Genesis, in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the multitudes of stars in the heavens. Here's the problem. Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was 90, 90 years old. He was in the advanced stages of andropause and she was in the advanced stages of menopause. It would take a miracle for them to have one child but God is saying to them, your descendants will be like the multitudes of the stars in the heavens. So what did they decide to do? They decided to help God out with the human wisdom. So in Genesis 16, Sarah says to Abraham, take my maidservant Hagar, sleep with her, and produce an offspring. And through that offspring, God's promises of descendants like the stars will be fulfilled. What did Abraham said? Okay, Lord. And they produced Ishmael, and they thought Ishmael, the one that they produced by their own human effort, he would be the one through whom God's promises would be fulfilled. Well, Genesis 18 verse 10, God comes to them and says, no, in a year's time, Sarah will be with child. And you know what they did? They laughed. They laughed in disbelief. 
99 year old, advanced stages of andropause, 90 years old, advanced stages of menopause. We have a child? It's impossible. That's precisely the point, friends. It was impossible. It needed a miracle of God in order to happen. And guess what? It did happen. A year later, she did have a child. Isaac, the child of promise. Why is he the child of promise? Because God made a promise. God said this child will come. And they cannot do anything to make that happen. They can only trust the promise of God. God must intervene and do something spiritual for Isaac to come about. And he was born. Genesis 21 verse 12, God says to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that is what Paul quotes here in Romans 9 verse 7. And then in Romans 9 verse 8, he gives an explanation. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise, the supernatural children of God that are counted as offspring. And in Romans 9 verse 9, he picks up Genesis 18 verse 10, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The child of promise cannot come about by human effort. It can only come about by miracle of God. Christopher Ash says this, it takes a miracle to make someone a Christian. Now friends, if you're sitting here and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe he died on the cross for your sins and, and, and you are his, know this, you are a walking, talking, breathing, sometimes laughing, sometimes crying, miracle of God. Without a miracle of God, Nobody can become a child of God. No pastor can preach passionately enough for you to become a child of God. It must be done by God. And friends, can I say, this is not something new to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and that you may live. It's not enough for you just to be circumcised in the flesh. You need to be circumcised in the heart. And Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, it's not enough just to think you can circumcise yourself in the heart. God must do a miracle in your heart to make you live, to make you love Him above all. It takes a miracle to become a true child of God. I've been reading the biography of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great 18th century evangelist. He was from the UK, but he would take a, a ship all the way to America and preach there. And the likes of Benjamin Franklin used to be mesmerized by his preaching. Did you know that George Whitfield, in his 20s, he read a book by the Puritan Henry Schugel. And the name of the book was The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And in this book, as, as he read this book, Whitfield came to be convinced, and he says this, that salvation is nothing less than receiving the very life of God within the human soul. Salvation is not just saying a prayer, oh, boom, I become a member of the church, uh, or, or oh, I, I, I just tick a box, hey, I, I'm a Christian. No, 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 friends. Salvation is nothing less than receiving the very life of God within the human soul. It's miraculous. Therefore, Whitfield says it is both a divine and eternal work. And maybe that's what gave Whitfield the kind of anointing and power to preach the way he did. Because he understood it wasn't his preaching that was doing the converting. It was the power of God 
And all he had to do is let go and preach his heart out and be faithful to the gospel. Friends, if any one of us is a follower of Jesus Christ here today, it's because God has done a miracle in your life. It's supernatural. It's not just spiritual, friends. It's supernatural. You are a child of God, not by decision, but by miracle of God. Friends, there's more. In verses 10 to 13, Paul shows us that the true children of God, the true Israel, are spiritual and miraculous, and, and those are the ones to whom the promises of God have been made and the promises of God have been fulfilled. But there's one more thing here. In verses 10 to 13, he says that they're also chosen and elected by God. Come with me to verses 10 to 13. Paul now goes down one generation, and he talks about Isaac, Rebekah, and their two sons, Jacob and Esau. And see what he says in verse 10. And not only so, when Rebekah has conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac. You see, Paul is anticipating this argument. Some will say to him, uh, very well that you've talked about Isaac and Ishmael, but do you notice that it's still by descent? And they'll say, why? Well, because you see, they shared the same father, Abraham. And yes, he was Jewish, but they had different mothers. Hagar was not Jewish. So uh, Ishmael was only part Jewish. And because of that, he wasn't a child of promise. Isaac, oh, he's fully Jewish. And therefore, he is a child of promise. So it's still by descent. But Paul says, go one generation down. Let's consider Jacob and Esau. Same father, same mother. Not only that, conceived at the same time. They were twins. So biologically and physically, more or less the same. And yet, it's Jacob and not Esau, that is the child of promise. Why was Jacob and not Esau the child of promise? Well, look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. Well, it's not because of anything they had done or anything that is inherently about them because this decision of Jacob being the child of promise had already been made before they were born, before any of them had done anything good or bad. So Why? Why was Jacob the child of promise, the true child of God, and Esau was not? Look at verse 11, friends. It's in order, Paul says, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Very clearly, again, he's saying it's not because of anything they have done. It's not because of works. So why is Jacob the child of promise and not Esau? Because of the purpose of election, because of God's call, is because God has decided and chosen Jacob and not Esau to be the child of promise. Verse 12, Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger. In their culture, it was the younger who served the older. But God in his sovereignty reversed the order and said, I will prefer the younger. I will prefer Jacob. And finally, in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Now, friends, what does it mean here that God hated Esau? My friends, it's an Hebrew idiom. It's like, you know, when you say, I'm starving, generally, it doesn't mean that you're emaciated at the point of death. It just means you're really hungry and you want the sermon to finish as soon as possible. Right, when you say you're starving. And that's the kind of Hebrew idiom that's being used here. In Luke 14, 26, for example, Jesus says to his followers, if you follow me, you will need to hate your family. 
Now, we know Jesus can't be speaking literally because in other parts of the scriptures, he tells us to take care of our families. And on the cross, Jesus shows great care to his mother Mary. So Jesus cannot literally mean that you must hate your family. But what he is saying is that if you are truly going to be a follower of me, you need to prefer me over your earthly family. And that's what's being said here. God prefers Jacob over Esau. And it's not because of anything Jacob is or has done. It's because of God's sovereign choice. Now, friends, this opens up a whole can of worms. And I assure you, Joel, when he comes to preach the next section here, he will try to contain some of those worms. And as you go into your CGs, you'll also be trying to contain some of those worms. I think I'll probably take leave next week. So it is not an easy doctrine, but it is a biblical doctrine. And we will take time to wrestle through it because it brings much help. But let me just say two things. Number one, some people say this makes God unfair. He's not fair. Well, the fact is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So neither Jacob or Esau deserve to be chosen by God. So if God really were to be fair, he would say, I reject both. The fact that he chooses one and not the other shows that God is merciful and gracious. Election, friends. God choosing us, Ephesians 1 verse 4, from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the second thing. Highlights for us how gracious God's grace is. You see, friends, by definition, grace is free. If I say to you, hey, you do that uh, for me, uh, and then I show you grace, uh, it's no longer grace. It's compensation. Grace must be given absolutely free. There can be nothing in the person that receives grace that merits that grace, whether it's inherent in who they are or what they have done. So friends, if we truly want to believe in grace that is free and grace that is freeing, we have to believe in election because that makes the source of grace completely outside of us. It's not about you, not what you know, not how you look, not your pedigree. God simply says, you, I will show my grace too. And again, friends, can I say this is not new to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8, God says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's not because of all these things that you have done or who you are that God chose you and set his love on you. What does it say? It says it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he made to your fathers. Why does God set his love on some and not others? simply because he has decided to set his love on some and not others. Friends, do you see? Do you see how God's promises to Israel have not failed? His promises to the true Israel have not failed. The spiritual, miraculous, and chosen Israel, they have not failed. And if God's promises have not failed them, you can be sure that God's promises will not fail you if you are one of the spiritual, miraculous, and chosen children of God. But here's the thing. Some of you are getting a bit worried. You're wondering to yourselves, how do I know that I've been chosen by God? How do I know that this miracle has really been done in my life 
and that I'm really one of these spiritual children. Now, friends, this is one of those things that if you're worried about it, you probably shouldn't worry about it. But if you're not worried about it, you should really worry about it. It's one of those things. Come with me, friends, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And this is what the same Apostle Paul says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So is it possible to know whether you're chosen or not? Yes or no? Please say yes. Yes. How? Look at verse 5. For our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You see, not just clarity. Conviction. How do we know that someone is chosen of God? It's because they believe in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with full conviction. If you look at Jesus and you say, I believe he died for me, Paul says you can be convinced. This is what the great reformer John Calvin says. If we are elected in him, we cannot find the certainty of our election in ourselves and not even in God the Father if we look at him apart from the Son. Christ Jesus is the mirror in which we ought and in which without deception we may contemplate our election. You see what Calvin is saying here? Jesus Christ is the reflection of our election. If I look to Jesus and I do believe in him, I can have some confidence that I'm truly chosen of God. In the Philosopher's Stone, uh, we're introduced to something called the mirror of Eriset. I discovered that it's desire spelled backwards. My children told me that. And what does the mirror of Eriset do? Well, when you gaze into that mirror, what reflects is what do you desire the most and what you long for the most. So when Harry looked into that mirror, what did he see? His parents. All of you secretly reading Harry Potter, right, when you were kids in church. His parents because those were the ones that he most longed for. They were murdered. Friends, this is what God's word is saying in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5. If you stare into the mirror of God's election and you see Jesus Christ, the one who lived for you and the one who died for you, even though you are an unworthy sinner, and you long for him, and you desire him, you can be confident that God has set his love on you from before the foundation of the world. He has chosen you. And do you know what that means, friends? Look at me for a moment. It means that God knows you through and through. He's seeing the darkest things in your heart. He's seen you at the lowest of lows in your life. He's seen it all. And that neither repels him from you nor compels him to you because he has simply said to you, you are mine. And not just on the day you were born, on the day you accepted Christ, you are mine. From before the foundation of the world. And that is the sure 
unchanging, solid, unstoppable love that God has for you, the true children of God, the spiritual, miraculous, and chosen ones. And friends, when you anchor your life on that solid love, just wait and see because the world has not seen what you will do with that love. You will be humbled, but you will be so confident because that love, friends, never began and it never ends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving me your word for myself and for the church to remind us again of how unstoppable and great and glorious and immeasurable your love is for us. And I pray for each of us, Father, that we will go from here with a deep sense of that love that changes everything about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.